Hi there, welcome to Active Intelligence. I'm Aaron Ironside. I hope you can spend the next half an hour or so with me as we take a look at important issues from a variety of perspectives. And today's episode is truly homegrown. In fact, focused right in the Canterbury region, Christchurch has had more than its fair share of tragedy and it's affecting the children of the region. And that's our topic today on Active Intelligence. On today's episode, I catch up with Mike Anderson. He's the principal of Waimati School, and he has some powerful stories to share about the experience of the earthquake, of the shootings, of the pandemic. Three major tragedies, of course, the fire in the Port Hills thrown in for good measure as well. Christchurch, a scary place to grow up in uh, for some kids, uh, but it shouldn't be, of course. Let's meet some of the kids of Waimati School and remind us how life is supposed to be, how innocent and the concerns of a primary school child should really be about getting to school safely. I'm Izzy and I'm year six. I'm Sam and I'm year six. Waimati, because it's quite close to where lots of people live, most people do walk to school. I go, I ride on my scooter. It, in the morning it's always quite quiet and I like just having some peace. When I was going over the bridge I always like looking at the um, hills that you can see just in the distance and I try to look and see if there's any trains coming and that's always, always cool. I like that it's really peaceful because I do like jumps and stuff over like the cracks on my street. When it's windy I have to try step back where I know I'm about to cross the road just in case something like blows me over onto the road. Um, always look out for cars or like bikes coming up from behind you because like a few times like a bunch of bikes have come up behind me. I always see um, my friends like because they come to school quite early as well. Uh, well I put it in the scooter rack and sometimes me and a few other people will go on our scooters and play in the scooter court um, there, over there. Oh, tell me about that. Well, it's pretty cool because like a lot of other schools don't have it. So like you can like get your scooter and just ride around on the scooter court for lunch and morning tea. Beautiful kids at Waimati School. Uh, and yet those very innocent young ones have had to face some evil of monumental proportions with respect to the shootings. Of course, uh, before that came the event that changed the city forever, the Christchurch earthquakes. I thought I was going to die. As the violent and unforgiving February earthquake brought buildings across Christchurch to their knees. I was on the fifth floor of the CTV building. Yep, and uh, just came down, like, right down. I was buried under part of the ceiling. And uh, when I looked out, I saw that we were on the road and people were looking at us but not everyone walked out. I hadn't heard any news and I remember Anna just said to me, Sam, I need to tell you the CTV buildings come down and no one's heard from Mum. I remember turning on the TV and next minute it was like, oh my God, was that the CTV building? And I just remember seeing the sign that was up the top of the CTV building down in the car park and Mum's car parked in front of it. 
the imam, a much-loved CTV presenter. Welcome back to the second part. They rushed to the CTV cordon just to be near her. It was the, that was so hard, being like, we need to get close to be there when she comes out of the building. Yeah. But... But we couldn't. No. We weren't allowed, obviously. They were kept out of the city. Where building after building had failed. Absolutely frightening. The PGC building collapse took the lives of 18 people. I'm alive, that's, that's a nice thing. I was, on the, I was on the ground floor when the building came down. I don't know how I got out. Collapsed facades claimed over 30 more lives on the city streets. Eight perished on bus number 702. Desperate for information, Joe Giles' daughters went home, forced to watch the CTV recovery effort on television. Anyone who can is helping because the injured, they say, keep pouring in with a range of injuries. We were literally looking at people on the TV being recovered and thinking, is that an outfit mum would wear? Did that look like her hair? Did that look like her shoe? Two long weeks after the building collapsed, they were finally officially told their mother had died, along with 114 others. Thousands and thousands of aftershocks made it feel like the earthquakes never stopped. And of course, we'll find out what kind of effect that has when the danger doesn't seem to pass quickly. And just when the city, it seemed, had gotten over the earthquakes, it found itself in the centre of a terror attack, something we never thought would happen in New Zealand. We didn't think it would happen in Christchurch of all places, but even the international media couldn't help but focus their attention on a terror attack right in God's own. Injured people are rushed to hospital. They were gunned down during Friday prayers at Al Noor Mosque in the centre of Christchurch. Yeah, what happened? He came one side because the mosque had segments, you know, and uh, he came this side. He shot this side. He went to another room, shot there. There's a ladies' section. He went and shot them. Uh, and I, I just had one of the ladies that died. I know. I'm just hoping that that is not right. Witnesses say the gunman was a white male. He was wearing military-style clothes and a helmet with a camera. I was uh, hearing that uh, shooting after shooting after shooting. It went on about um, uh, six uh, minutes or more, and uh, I could hear screaming and crying, and uh, I saw some people were, you know, dropped dead. Linwood Mosque, about 10 minutes' drive away in another part of the city, was also attacked shortly after the shooting at Al Noor. Mike Anderson has a very powerful story to share later in the episode about the experience of the mosque shootings. Uh, but of course, now we have this ongoing danger, not the terror of armed gunmen, but the terror of COVID-19. And of course, that has meant that so many children have had to cope with endless lockdowns, learning from home. Uh, it's not been fun uh, for anybody. It certainly changed the way our educators have had to develop a, a brand new set of caring skills and educational skills as they've had to deal with a global pandemic. So yes, yeah, so we're finding the same anxieties. Um, as we came back from uh, lockdown, obviously there was different things in place around parents allowing, you know, allowing parents on site because of contact tracing. So the initial yeah. excitement of coming back to school was great. And then they were like, well, actually, we've got other issues around, you know, parents not being able to come on site and we're very much a, a community school. Mm. So that was hard for the parents to leave them at the gate and, you know, their own parents' anxiety levels as well. Therefore, onto the kids makes it uh, a challenge as well because they, um, you know, display how the parents are feeling as well. So. 
So three incredible challenges in a very short amount of time for the children and the teachers of Christchurch, which is why we thought it was important to catch up uh, with one of the local primary school principals, Mike Anderson from Waimati School. He's been principal for 14 years, and I asked him if he could cast his mind back to prior to the pandemic, the shootings, the earthquake. Uh, what was life like before all of this danger seemed to change everything? It seems like another planet, really. And just thinking back there, uh, I want to say it was, it was carefree and happy, uh, but I'm, I'm sure that it wasn't. There were the usual hassles of life and, and problems to deal with. I think at that stage we were battling an overhauled curriculum being reintroduced and there would have been the usual education sector grievances going on. <laughs> well, of course, things would change for Christchurch. First, the earthquakes, and then, of course, more latterly, uh, the terrible shootings. And, uh, and now, of course, everybody has been affected by the pandemic. They're all three different kinds of trauma. Children have different ways of dealing with these things. They're unexpected. They don't know how to, to cope with them. Let's go back to the, to the first one, the major one that changed the city. Uh, how did the children of the city respond to the earthquakes, to the fact that they didn't stop for a long, long time, to the fact that the the city was responding to a, a really significant local tragedy. Uh, uh. The the in hindsight, the children by and largely responded to the cues, either deliberate or accidental, that the adults around them were giving. And and to look back at an overview and, and thinking about this to prepare for this um, interview. Definitely, it's it's the way that the adults conduct themselves, either deliberately or subconsciously. There's a big factor in the way that the children process and deal with the trauma themselves. Can you play that out for me in terms of what would be an example of a an unhelpful set of signals that adults were sending versus a helpful one? We we used um, the example um, of travelling by air when we were our st- when we were dealing with our staff on how to deal with children. Um, I'm, I'm not a, a, I'm a frequent flyer, but I'm an, an unwilling flyer. I don't like it. I have an irrational fear. Um, and I, I just get by, I suck it up and I do it. But, um, and, and largely that's because of the reassuring presence of the cabin crew. Um, they don't go out of their way to reassure me, but their demeanor gives me reassurance. And uh, a few years before the quakes, I was on a flight to Wellington. And as we left Christchurch, there was a, a noise of a hissing, air escaping sort of thing coming from down the back of the cabin and I wanted to get off but that wasn't an option so I sat there squeezing the armrests of going through some some breathing exercises to try and bring myself back Um, and all was good because the cabin crew were going about their business and that was the thing that was just letting me hang in there and um, about 10 minutes into it instead of using the internal telephone on the, the one from the front called to the cabin crew member who was about halfway down the aisle with the trolley and said yeah I can hear it up here too hey wow and that just I just went to pieces and that's the example of the small things we can do in front of the children that can be the tipping point were the children easily triggered there were so many aftershocks I visited the city a few times both when the earthquakes were first occurring and then even months later and I know that as soon as there was a tremor people were very much on edge Definitely, definitely. Um, it's, it's, and that's a normal physiological reaction, and we didn't try to stop those. It's, it's what after the initial reaction is the thing. It's that the, the children instantly glance to you as an adult, either a parent or a teacher or a principal or whatever. It's so 
the immediate reaction is a fight-flight reaction. It's a sudden reptilian brain thing going on. Um, you know, as an aside, no one goes under a desk and seeks shelter in the moment because we lose the ability to access that rule that sits in our advanced functioning. Um, so it's, it's the immediate after reaction, that's it. That's it. And, and you don't need to um, tell lies and, 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 and be dishonest uh, and say things like, well, it will never happen again. <laughs> because it's going to in 10 minutes time <laughs> so it's a calm reassurance um, of, of course when it came to the earthquakes children were being personally affected at least some of them right their, their homes yeah. might have been damaged or destroyed certainly yeah. they might have known someone whose life was yes. very much affected that sets this apart from the other two examples where it's much more personal for the children yes. how did that change things that they might have personally been uh, experiencing the, the results of the earthquake they, the, the, the children who um, were, were dealing with the, the major things, the loss of a home, the serious injury or the death of a, a, a someone within their social circle, uh, those particular things were one-off traumas, like, say, a car crash. So, so the aftershocks were, were, were triggering memories of those things, but they weren't as traumatic as that initial thing, which was good. It wasn't good that they went on for nearly two years and there was something like you know, 13,000 of them. But it, it settled into a mode where we could differentiate between those, there were three ginormous big events and the rest of the aftershocks. And we focused on, on with the children on, on teaching them the aftershocks are normal and they're going to keep happening, but they're not as bad as those big ones that we had. Looking back, would you say that the children were able to demonstrate resilience? Were they able to take on board these tactics for coping? They were, they were able to be taught and modelled and they, they learned and adapted, and most, most of them did. Many, many families were, left Canterbury. Thousands of people left Canterbury, and I think those that left, a big part in leaving was that either the adults or the children in that situation couldn't handle it. And I respect that decision to move somewhere safe. Why stay there and keep exposing your child to it? How many nights of bed wetting and how, how, how many episodes of being afraid of hearing the wind blow would you put a child through before you realise that maybe we should leave Canterbury for a bit? So I respect that. So I, I think what we were left with, the hardcore ones, were, were those who, for whom it was an eight and they were getting over it anyway, or their parents and their teachers had, had worked hard on um, teaching strategies, coping strategies, and teaching children a, a meta-awareness of what was happening to them, and, and, and it was perfectly normal to be freaked out. Well, speaking about being freaked out, let's go to our second trauma. Just when the city thought it had recovered from the earthquakes, yeah. becomes the victim of a terrorist attack, a terror attack, something we never thought we'd see on our shores. Uh, of course, for the people of Christchurch, it's like as if you hadn't been through enough. This one was very much the one-off event and one that was super scary, but not super personal for most of the children. How is that one different from the earthquake and the way in which children responded? I think the children within our school responded in the way that they did because of our geographic location to it. That was in our neighbourhood. That was real close to us. And um, we had families within the Muslim community, you know, long-term Waimari school families, um, including, um, sorry, I've strangely emotional thinking back to it. We were, we were affected personally by it. And um, um, there was one particular family, a reasonably large family who, who suffered two two um, deaths um, in in the Christchurch mosque building, and they, they are children of Waimati, and it was horrible. So this was actually very personal. Sorry, I'm just getting a bit teary-eyed there. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it was not nice. Um, 
and I saw it firsthand because I was filling in for a teacher that afternoon, um, um, left the ivory tower of my office to go and teach in a classroom. Um, and so I ended up being barricaded in a classroom with the children and I had to let my deputy principals um, run the emergency situation from the office because I couldn't cross the school to get to the office. So I hunkered down with the children in the room um, as the afternoon became the early evening and we were a classroom that didn't have a toilet. So we had to make a, um, a makeshift toilet out of a rubbish bin and a plastic bag. We barricaded some bookcases around it to get a bit of privacy. Um, and so whenever anyone, including me, had to use it at one stage, <laughs> um, you couldn't see what was going on, but you certainly could hear. And so uh, the, me and the kids came up with, a, um, a, they picked the song, I think it was We Will Rock You by Queen. So anytime anyone stood in the behind the bookcases and peed in the, in the um, rubbish bin, um, everyone sang We Will Rock You really loudly. So there was no embarrassment for the sound. <laughs> <laughs> That's almost a surreal story, Mike. Uh, it, was, it was surreal. It got worse. There was a child um, whose father, uh, outside the school gates, were parents who themselves were experiencing um, that natural inbuilt concern about your, your, your child. You know, that's, that's, that's patterned in for evolution over thousands and thousands of years to look after your kid. Um, and, and, and again, losing... Um, frontal cortex access, they went down into their um, um, hindbrains and their fight-flight mode to look after their kids was huge. I had a, a, a very large, very strong man um, appear at the classroom door, starting to break it down um, to get his boy out, screaming and yelling at me. And I'd kept the children calm until that stage. Um, and I hadn't told them, I didn't even know fully what was going on. Um, and because I wasn't able to tell them, I just said that we just have to stay in the classroom to keep safe. And so when this huge, angry, screaming, yelling, swearing father was smashing up against the door, trying to break it off his hinges, they thought that was the thing that had come to our school. They thought that was the reason Christchurch was locked down. This was a man going around schools doing whatever to children. And so their panic was intense. They, 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 they took off down to the back end of the classroom where there was no door to get out. And we're almost like climbing the walls in panic as he was smashing his way in. And I, I had called um, 111, but the operator couldn't hear me over the noise of the children screaming. It was awful. That sounds like a truly terrible, terrible moment for, for you and the children. And I suppose that's something worth picking up on here. It's not like the adults are immune to what's going on. No, we were the ones who'd gone through the earthquake stuff ourselves. We were at homes and our own families. And we would we were running our tanks dry, perhaps too dry. Um, and we've learned more about that. I can talk about it later on if you want. We've learned how to cope if it happens again. What we do differently but that one for me pushed me over the edge um that was my final i i needed quite a bit of professional help after that incident that trauma that i went through and it wasn't all about that that, that actually surfaced back all the stuff that i hadn't been handling well looking after the kids during the earthquakes yeah wow and that brings us to the modern times where we find ourselves in this ongoing pandemic it's not clear when it will be over certainly it has changed everything uh, particularly for educators having to learn how to be incredibly innovative and agile but nonetheless dealing also with children who now have these deep questions about reality itself is the world a safe place this one's going on and on and on how has it been different in your observation how children coping with this invisible enemy called COVID-19 and this pandemic that will not stop my observation of children down here in Christchurch is that their coping levels are very good because there's no visible evidence yet. 
the, the aunt swathes of mums and dads in bed sick and kids having to get themselves cornflakes because they can't, you know, <laughs> mum and dad can't get out of bed or, or there, there aren't, the, there, there isn't the localised news footage of overwhelmed emergency rooms and, and people on ventilation machines. So to the children, it's still a largely an abstract thing. Um, it's just incredibly disruptive to them and it's annoying to wear a mask, but they're fine with it. Okay. So the, kids, are, the kids are doing okay. How are the, how the adults doing? doing? Okay. How are the teachers I, I doing? I think if we move to, to, if the outbreak goes to the worst case of the planning, yeah. it'll be different. But man, um, the irony of saying, I'm so glad we went through the earthquakes and the, and the terrorist attack, uh, because after that, we, as a school, we took a long, hard look at that and we actually spent a lot of time and money on uh, professional development and, and some action research in the field on uh, well-being for staff, which feeds to well-being through to children. And what we learned then is absolutely in play now, and we're using that language and we're modelling it. We went deeply into um, psychological capital and, and other areas of positive psychology. Yeah. Uh, leaned heavily on the work of um, um, local um, legend Lucy Hone and um, um, Denise McQuinlan as well. And it just, yeah, I'm so glad we did that. We spent two years as a staff making that our professional learning focus. Then if you were to compare yourself with another school who hasn't gone through that, what, what would you say marked you out now as different? I think we just have an, a, a language and an ability, a, an understanding of self and an understanding of others that can only come by taking some time to do that. I've actually been asked to go and speak at several staff development sessions at other schools and um, um, the Wellbeing Institute published a book um, um, a couple of years ago uh, called the um, Handbook for Wellbeing in Schools. It's got some practical case studies and our, our story is featured in there as an example of practical things people can do. I know the whole country at the moment is, is, is in an event but I, I would encourage everyone who's got a role in looking after children, particularly institutions like schools, to focus on the next bad thing that's going to happen because life is full of bad things. Uh, the whole notion of psychological capital is making sure you're walking around with a full tank because there will be draining events that happen in life. You know, people you know are going to get brain tumours. Our homes are going to get broken into. People are going to have car crashes. There will be drownings of people we know. All these things are going to keep happening. It's how you fill your tank up so that when they do, you don't you drain down to half rather than conking out because you're running on empty. And that's been the thing that our staff have been given through a lot of professor glib quick thing to say like that as a metaphor, but it's, it's some reasonably deep understandings of those four pillars of psychological capital. And yeah, it's very, very powerful stuff. What we've also seen is that the community are now leaning into the school in ways perhaps we've never seen before. Yep. You know, the school used to just be the place really for reading, writing and arithmetic, but now it's required to be this this other place for children, a place of support and connection of community. How has your vision and picture of the role a school plays in its community changed as a result of these last few years? It's actually affirmed it. Um, and we've leveraged it. We had that, what that was our ethos anyway. We've adopted um, um, the work of uh, Professor Ang Angus McFarlane, um, whose publication, Kiehiwara, and Listen to Culture, uh, proposes a, a, a culturally responsive framework for schools to, to work within um, called the Educultural Wheel. And that is all about manaakitanga, kotahitanga, whanaunatanga, uh, rangatiratanga. So the school being all of those things, not just a factory for reading and writing. So we've We've leveraged off that and, and the whole community's understood that they are those values that we hold dear 
aren't some trendy things that are etched on the glass. That they're actually some ways to be, ways to live and ways to react to each other, which will get each other through these things. I can't imagine that many teachers were trained well enough, no offence to the universities and the teachers training colleges, to, to have to provide this scope of care and skill beyond just simply being an educator. How are the teachers growing and, and, and kind of catching up with all of these new demands? Our staff are doing it particularly well because we're, we're prior, we have done for a number of years is prioritise that as their professional learning. So we haven't been hammering them on different ways of teaching maths or, or come on, I'm cracking the whip, I want better writing scores and reading scores. We actually said that none of that stuff will ever happen unless you have well children and well families around this school. And so the weight of that wellness is through this work. And then those minds will be ready to do well with your reading, writing and maths. But you're wasting your time beating around the fringes on the technical aspect of subject delivery if those brains in front of you are not in a, a, a state of learning. Yeah, frightened brains aren't very good at learning. No, no they're not. Yeah, so look, I, I, it's a priority. It, that's how you make it happen. It's, it's a professional learning priority. You resource it, you get good expertise in, um, and, and the teachers are, most people are generally interested to learn new things if, if they've got headspace for it. Mike, what's your proudest moment when you think of the way in which teachers and children and families have responded to the challenges over the last few years? Is there a story that sort of sums up the best of this? Yeah. Um, the, the phone call and then um, on the first day back when the school had reopened after the terror incident, um, the handmade gift um, which had cultural significance from the family of the man who tried to get into the classroom and them articulating to me how what happened wasn't part of and aligned to our school values and the way we roll and the beautiful raw emotion of me and them being able to reconcile with each other using a framework which was that all that work we've done on cultural responsiveness and, and, and positive psychology. That was really touching. That's a good story too, because so often we've, we're tempted to be cynical about that kind of work that mm. you, you probably won't really use this cultural responsiveness stuff, but it's kind of exactly. good PC stuff. Exactly. But this was actually really important. Yeah, and, and, and a big wrong was, was put right in a beautiful way because everyone knew about that framework. Mike Anderson proving that he is an exceptional leader, principal of Waimati School. Amazing to see how he has really front-footed this issue, made sure that well-being is a priority, not just for the children, but for the teachers as well, who are really struggling to run on a full tank because, let's be honest, when do you get a chance to recover from all that's happening with the global pandemic? But he sounds like a remarkable person doing a great job uh, in very trying circumstances. And it's fascinating, isn't it, that he realizes that uh, the best way to recover, in a sense, is to anticipate, to realize there's going to be more difficult things in the road ahead because that's just the way life is. Life is full of challenges and troubles. Uh, but many of us have been caught on the hop, not prepared for challenges, not with a full tank, as he said, to deal with things that would drain us of coping energy. So as we start a new year, perhaps we should all remember uh, that it's so important that we try as best we can to put something back in the tank because we simply don't know what's coming next. We'll leave you uh, this episode with some advice for the parents. 
Uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it's a it's a time like no other. So um, you know, don't be embarrassed. Uh, don't don't feel shame. Um, ultimately, school is a place where, as uh, Carl mentioned, the routine and, and a bit of normalisation are uh, where it's at. So you know, coming back to school actually might. Um, set all the waters a little bit and, and provide a bit of uh, stability for your child and for your for your family. So, um, you know, we provide lots of external things that aren't just uh, learning. You know, the, the we've got warm classrooms, we've got uh, food on on you know ready to go for the kids as well. So, you know, if there are other factors that are that are I guess making you anxious or keeping you at home, um, it's not a time to be embarrassed, not a time to feel shame, but a time to you know, ask for help and ask for support. Well, love to hear your thoughts about uh, dealing with crisis. How has your local school been dealing with this? Have you got any stories to share, comments to make? We'd love to hear from you. You can visit the website, activeintelligence.nz, and make sure you hit that subscribe button, and we'll make sure that every new episode goes direct into your inbox. We'll see you next time on Active Intelligence.